You're listening to the Acts, How the Gospel Changes the World series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. I'm going to begin tonight by making a statement that I think we will all agree with. And that is that happiness is often sought after, but a rarely captured state of being. A lot of people seek after happiness, seek after lasting joy, but rarely do people find it. Certainly we can apply this to the non-Christian world, but I believe even within the church, there's a lot of people who have been told there is joy in Christ. But they never seem to, to find that joy completely. Not the way that, that it seems like the apostles did. Not the way it seems like the disciples did. And the question is, why? Why is it that even as believers today, we have this trouble? Is Jesus just not satisfying our joy like he used to? Certainly, that's not the answer. And so what I want to do this evening is look at the Apostle Paul. When we survey the world and, and how the world seeks for happiness, seeks for joy... I think oftentimes we find it in the pursuit of success. And many times success is measured by wealth. And so you have people out there, and even believers out there, and even some of us who equate our level of happiness with how we are doing financially. Now, I'm not saying that we're all Scrooges or anything like that. But I do think, if I was to say something like, hey, listen, when you leave today, you're all going to get 10 bucks in your pocket, you'd probably say, well, that's going to make me happy. that's That's a nice thing at least for a short time. Well, if I said it was $1,000, then you'd probably be even more happy, right? I mean, exciting thing. It's not actually going to happen, but it'd be an exciting thing. Now, we would not say, we've all heard the old adage that says money can't buy happiness or more money, more problems, right? So we get it that happiness is not coming from money, but we we kind of equate a little bit of, hey, if I had, if I had more money, if I had a better job, I, I could do all these other things. I could take my family on a nice vacation. I could, I could have a nicer car. I could do such and such. And by doing those things, I would just find more happiness in my life. It's a fairly normal thing to think. On January 14th, the Washington Post ran a story called The Bliss Point. And it covered a massive study that they did on, on all the countries. And what they're trying to discern was whether having more money in a country actually meant greater happiness for the people that lived in that country. And they found that there was a bliss point. Now, one of the things that the survey found was that people in the world are generally unhappy. It was, it was kind of shocking to see the level of satisfaction in lives was fairly low across the board. But what they did find was it seems like a measure of wealth can buy a certain measure of satisfaction in your life because for the most part, wealthier countries said that they were happier people. But there was a a, a bliss point or a point where after you got to a certain level, it dropped off. And so when you got to an average of $33,000 a year or more income, people started to become less happy. So I have a solution for everybody tonight. If you make more than $33,000 a year, just subtract your amount minus $33,000, give the rest to the church. That's how I'm going to help you tonight. Thank you for coming. No, (laughs) we're not going to do that. But... (laughs) It's funny that they had all these things measured, and I thought, you know what, it's amazing how the world, and even believers, we desire happiness, and that's no doubt, we're built that way. But the way we go about it is so wrong sometimes. And when we look at the Word of God, it's very easy to see that 
pursuing our own happiness is not the ultimate goal. What if God's design for our joy is in pursuing something other than our joy? What if that undeniable binding urge that we feel to pursue selfish endeavors is actually hindering us from finding true satisfaction? I think that's the case. Our pursuit of joy for ourselves is the reason that we don't find joy for ourselves many times. Tonight we're going to look at this man, the Apostle Paul, who's an example for us in so many areas. And he's a joyful man. He found the joy that we're all looking for, but he found it when he wasn't looking for it. So we'll look at his life tonight. Let's pray and then we'll get into the text. Father, we love you, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather under your word, Lord, the authority that it has in our lives. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak, Lord, that we would be open to what you have to say to us, that we would be um, willing to accept your plan for our joy and willing to accept your plan for our lives. And Lord, sometimes, sometimes what you ask us to do is counterintuitive, Lord, that it's we think we should find joy in one place and you say it's found somewhere else. And God, I pray that we would accept what you have to say and not what our minds. Lord, I pray that we'd understand how feeble our minds are and how we've been, humanity has been chasing joy in all the wrong places for so long. Maybe we should do it the way our Creator told us to. I pray you'd work in our hearts tonight, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Acts chapter 28, and we're finally at the city of Rome. It's taken us a long time to get here. But now we're in a city of nearly two million people, half of whom are slaves. And Paul arrives here, and he's greeted by an entourage of these believers that are excited to see him. And it almost seems like Paul arrives, and he's not quite sure whether he's excited to be there or not, because I think he envisioned himself coming to Rome much differently than he arrived. He arrived here as a Roman prisoner. He arrived here not knowing that he would be able to serve the church like he wanted to. His goal was to go to Rome, to be encouraged by the church, to show his gifts in the church, and to be encouraged by them. Instead, he's a Roman prisoner. He has no idea how God is going to work this out, that he can do all those things. But as he arrives and these people greet him, he's encouraged by them. It says he takes courage, and now he's ready to work. We're going to start reading in verse 16. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. We breezed by this verse last week, but I want to spend a little bit of time on it because it is really interesting to see the situation that Paul is in. We can easily skip by it, but think about that. There's maybe 150 criminals on this ship. They all get out and one by one get taken to the guard to be put in the barracks, to be put in the prison. And then one man is taken, set aside, and he's given a completely separate, special place to stay. In fact, he, we find out later, has his own rented home. How does this happen? Well, I think it happens ultimately because of God's sovereignty. But you you think about how this whole situation worked out. It's amazing that God has this way of Paul getting to Rome Paul gets to Rome, and then instead of being put in the prison where he can't serve the church like he wants to, God puts it in the heart of these soldiers, whether it's because uh, Festus and Agrippa didn't think that he was guilty in the first place, whether it's because Julius, the Roman centurion that that had him travel all the way there, thought that he was a great guy and, and, and spoke well of him. We don't know exactly why it was, but somehow God arranged it that he was able to stay with a guard in his own home. And so Paul, for two years, 
is, has a measure of freedom to do all the things he wants to do. And you say, well, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, there's a huge big deal with that. Because Paul's place of habitation here allowed him, first of all, to witness to the guard that he stayed with each day. Think about that. They, they would take four-hour shifts. And so you'd have a guard for four hours with him. And you'd be chained to Paul. That means you have to see how Paul eats and how he washes himself and how he brushes his teeth and how he prays and how he speaks to the people that come and the guests and the visitors that he has and how they speak about Christ and what he's done. And he gets time to speak with Paul. And then he sees Paul as he invites all these Jewish leaders and gives them the gospel. He sees how Paul lives his life every day. And I guarantee that the way Paul lived his life was the same as the way he preached. He lived it because he loved Jesus. And so these guards who maybe at first thought they had this terrible guard duty because they had to hear this guy preach about Jesus all the time, had the greatest opportunity of anybody to be with the Apostle Paul day in and day out, chained to him, literally watching everything he did. What an amazing situation to be in. And so it was a big deal because he got to witness to these guards. But not only that, he got to invite guests up to his room to preach the gospel to them. He got to invite missionaries or other brothers and sisters in Christ to help them with their churches and help them theologically. And whatever help the churches there needed, they could come and visit him. That's a great opportunity. He got to receive reports from churches all over the world that he had started. And because he received the reports, he was able to write letters. And so we have the book of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon, all because, all from this time, all because Paul was able to live in this special house. He was able to receive reports and write letters and, and send them. All of this happened because God had this wonderful plan that Paul did not understand the whole time. And, and you say, you're kind of off on a tangent, and I know I am a little bit, because this verse, I mean, it, all it says is that he's in a hired house, but, but think about this. God had this plan. Paul was not aware of it, and nobody else was either. And yet this was God's plan all along. And he orchestrated events so it all came to pass so that we have books of the New Testament now because Paul was given this house to stand. Just a little thing. And there we see God's sovereignty. And what I'm trying to say to you is that there are little things in your lives that God is working on and you don't even realize it. But it's, it's part of God's plan. And our job then is just to be faithful. Trust that he's a plan. So let's, let's go on to verse 17. And it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together. And when they were come together, he said unto them, Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people or the customs of our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they examined me, would have let me go, because there was no cause of death in me. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar, not that I had ought to accuse my nation of. So here, we find that after three days, after Paul's been in Rome for three days, he calls the chief leaders of the Jews together. It would be very different than what would happen in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, when you did that, you were calling the Sanhedrin, the 70-member body that kind of ruled all of Judaism. Here, he was just calling, he was probably sending like a telegram to all the different synagogues, saying, hey, listen, if you're a leader in the, the synagogue here, please come and meet the Apostle Paul. Meet Paul. And maybe he was introduced as a, a Jew who used to be a Pharisee who, and they would know, had very prominent standing as a Pharisee. He was, he was a pretty impressive guy. And so, I mean, I don't, it's pretty amazing already 
that they respond. Imagine that I went to like a place like Toronto and said, hey, listen, I'd like to have the chief uh, rulers of all the mosques come together. I need to talk to you about Islam and Christianity. Imagine I did that and everybody came. I mean, it wouldn't happen, right? But, but again, God has worked it out that Paul's in a situation where he can make this request and have everybody respond to it. And so we find there that everybody's in the house meeting with him. So they've come up to his rented house, the Roman guard chained to him. He's got, I mean, picture the scene. They're all sitting there, probably a room full of people, and he's telling them about what happened and why he's here. And he says, hey, listen, I want you to know something. Uh, so far, I have not been found guilty on anything. And the only reason I'm here is because there are some of the, the Jews from Jerusalem that have sent me here, and, and because I wasn't being set free, I had to appeal to Caesar. But I want you to know something. I have nothing against Jews or the temple. In fact, he, call, he says men and brethren. He calls them our customs. So he's identifying himself with this crowd. He's saying, listen, I'm a Jew. And, and I have nothing against Judaism. I am here just because there's a certain group that they really don't like me. But if you notice, even as he gives that speech, he is not unkind. He did not say that, I want you to know, they beat me until I was almost dead. And I was saved by the Romans. And then I was brought in front of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin almost tore me apart. He, he leaves a lot. He doesn't say that, well, I was brought to Caesarea, and the reason I was brought there was because there was a plot to kill me that was headed up by the Jewish leaders. See, he's being kind. He's not saying mean things that would angry these, anger these people because he wants to make the most of this opportunity. Because for Paul, what's more important than him being right is the gospel going forth. And so that's what's happening here. The gospel is going forth, and Paul is being humble and humbly telling them what happened. In verse 20, it says this, For this cause, therefore, have I called for you to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. I have one reason I called you here, and that is I want you to know that it's the hope of Israel that I'm bound with this chain. The reason I'm here, the reason I went through all of that there, the reason the Jews hate me so much, the reason I've been sent here, the reason I've called you, is because I believe in the hope of Israel. And we can go elsewhere in Scripture, in Acts chapter 26, 6, and see Paul saying almost the same thing to Agrippa. He says, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. And again, we find Paul has this hope that has bound him to what he's doing in his life. See, here he, he talks about being bound by the chains. But you think about that. What is really binding Paul? The reason that he is in the prison is not because he's bound by chains. Because if he was to renounce Christ at any moment, the chains would be gone. He's had multiple opportunities to do that. So he is not there because he just can't get out of the chains. He is there because he's bound by the hope of Israel. What's the hope of Israel? What is it that would make a guy who's so impressive as Paul, who is so prominent in, the, in Judaism, who could have been this wonderful ruler of his nation, turn from that to instead be in a prison chained to a Roman guard? What is a hope that is so great that could change your course of life in that direction? hope of Israel is that the Messiah would come. See, all through the Old Testament, the Messiah is prophesied. 
You look at the sacrifices and they're just a foreshadow of the Messiah coming. You look at their festivals and their feasts, it was all in preparation of this Messiah that would come. The whole Old Testament is gearing toward this one event that the Messiah would come and that He would bear the sins of all Israel. That He would rescue them. That's what He did. See, there's a, a great storybook that we read to our kids and the subtitle is that every story whispers His name. That's the hope of Israel. That the Messiah would come. And what He's saying here is, I am bound by the hope that you, are, you should be bound by as well. If you're really a Jew... If you really believe the Old Testament like you say you do, then this is a hope that you should be bound by. Now, how could any Jewish leader not respond to that by saying, hey, I want to hear what you have to say? Paul is brilliant. His technique is brilliant here. He is being led by the Spirit to, to show them that what he is teaching them is not contrary to the God that they believe in. So he says, I am bound by the hope of Israel. Verse 21, And they said unto him, we neither received letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee. But we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest, for as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. We in North America think that Christianity has a raw deal. We think that people are intolerant of us, right? The most tolerant society in the world, and yet everybody is intolerant of tolerance. And that would be the Christians. So somehow you can pick on Christianity, but I, can I tell you something? We don't have it that bad. Um, people being intolerant of Christianity is par for the course. It's, it's, it's normal. It's expected. See what Paul says there? What, what they say, hey, hey, we haven't heard anything specifically about you, Paul. But what we do know is that every time that this sect, this Christianity is spoken of, it's spoken against. That's been Christianity all the way along. And the only times when you look through church history where Christianity was accepted by the world around them, it seems like Christianity went down. And it's a bad thing. God's design was not for us to have an earthly kingdom. And so we should not be surprised when our government is not expressing all of our Christian values and beliefs. That, that is not our mission. The, the church's mission is not to change the government. You understand that, right? The church's mission is the gospel for a dying world. And so that's what Paul's mission was, and, and that's they're saying, hey, listen, we don't know much about Christianity, but we do know that everywhere, everybody hates it. So Paul's got a tall task in front of him. Verse 23 says, When they had pointed him a day, there came many to him in his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning until evening. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. They pick a day, and when it says that there's many that came, what it's saying is there's many more than were there before. And that would be pretty exciting to, to get together with a group of leaders and preach a message and, and then have the next time people show up, just a ton more people be there. So there's lots, lots of people there to hear what Paul has to say about the kingdom and about the hope of Israel. And so Paul does what he always does. He opens up the Old Testament. He shows them about the kingdom of God, which is the reign, the rule of God, how God's ruling throughout, and what his plan is throughout time to, to bring that place to where Christ died, and then ultimately for him to rule and reign in heaven and earth the same way. That kingdom of God and who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied. 
We see it through it. And this is Paul's MO. This is what he does. And so he gets an opportunity now to give the gospel to all of these Jewish leaders. And some believe, which is exciting and it's wonderful. And some don't. And that's just, that's what can, should be expected. And so, we see this, this opportunity that Paul has given, and we wonder how it applies at all to our lives. Well, as I was thinking about the application of this text, I started jotting down things that I would say, things that I think, you know, we could learn from. And I thought, well, there's Paul's technique. His technique is impressive. You know, he, he initiated the invitation to speak with them. So he's making the, the first step in the conversation. And not only that, he's making himself approachable. He's identifying with them. He's being kind. He's being uh, humble. Um, he's not complaining about his situation or his circumstances. He's just telling the facts as they are. We see in this passage, I think, his love for the Jews. There's so many little things we could see. I mean, that he uses every situation to promote the gospel. So we could look at each one of those things. But as I was reading this text over and over again, there was just this one theme that captured my attention. It is that Paul was bound by the hope of Israel and not by blank. Paul was bound by the hope of Israel and not by whatever else you want to put in there. He was bound by the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel is the promise of the Messiah to come and to save. And so he was bound by Jesus. He was bound by the gospel. He was bound by God's plan of salvation. He was not bound by whatever noun you want to place there. That's, that's huge. That, that, that is the life of the Apostle Paul to a T. He lived his life bound by hope, bound by Jesus, bound by the gospel, and not, by, not bound by whatever it is that we get bound by. And that's the difference between him and us. As Christians, we don't serve a different Messiah. We don't serve a different God. We don't have, I mean, maybe we have some different gifts, but Paul was not a supernaturally gifted, crazy order or anything like that. He, I mean, he was a smart guy. He was a guy. And so the difference is not all of those other things. The difference is he was bound by the gospel. That's what drove him. That's what motivated him in his life. He was not bound by everything that we get bound by. We started tonight speaking about what we pursue with happiness. Well, Paul did not spend his life ever pursuing his own selfish desires. I mean, sure, he felt he was human. He had, he had a flesh. Pastor spoke this morning about the Corinthians. Do you know what the, the problem with the Corinthian church was? They wanted Jesus and everything else. They wanted the world's pleasure. They wanted all of the things that the world offers. They wanted prestige. They wanted women. They wanted whatever it is that the world offers. And they wanted Jesus. That's why they were babies, right? You can't, you can't grow from there. What we're called to as believers, it's not, it's not like a minor change in your life type of calling. The Bible doesn't have a form of Christianity that is nominal. I mean, it's not like these are the crazy ones, and these are the nominal ones, and then these are the unchristians. There is there, the two piles, and it's like, okay, here are the Christians that are doing a terrible job in their babies in their walk, but this is what they're called to, and here are the ones that are they're called to this, and they're actually doing this. And Paul was the one that was actually doing what he was supposed to be doing. And so if we find ourselves with a less committed life than Paul, then what we find ourselves as is disobedient from where Paul is at. Okay, we're not... <laughs> It's not like he's called to a different calling than us as far as his level of commitment. Maybe a different task, maybe a different time period, 
but not a, a different level of commitment. And so that's what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. We do not see a desire for money, not a desire for comfort, not a desire for recognition, not a desire for longevity of his life, not a desire for popularity or sex, not a selfish desire. That's not how he lived. He was bound by the hope of the gospel. Let me read you a few verses. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul at the very end of his life said, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says, listen, I, I'm bound, but the word of God is not. I'm willing to suffer and endure all things for the elect's sake, so that I can give them the gospel, so that they can have salvation. That is how I live. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, for the love of Christ constrains us. What is the love of Christ? The fact that Christ died for our sins and he rose again that he was willing to take upon our punishment on him. And that love that he had received now constrained him to live that way for other people. The quintessential verses that describe Paul's perspective in, in his role in his life, how he viewed himself. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, that's, that's Paul's life. He understood that he was still alive, but he was not living his own life. He was living the life that Christ would have him live. He had crucified his flesh, his own desires, all of the things that he was bound by before. All of the things that he lived for before. And now he was living the life that Christ would have him live. He is an example of what every Christian is called to be, a person bound by the hope of the gospel. We should be living for the furtherance of the gospel. Our hope is not in our immediate future. It's not in a better relationship. It's not in better friends. It's not in more popularity. It's not in a better job. It's not in whatever temporal goals we can think of. Our hope is our eternal life. And so when we live... Why don't we keep that into perspective? If we believe in eternal life, why don't then we live for it? Happiness is an often sought after but rarely captured state of being. It's true. But it shouldn't be true for Christians. Because when we pursue God's design for us, when we pursue what Paul pursued, the glory of God in his life, the hope of the Messiah, when we pursue that, we do what we're created for. And that is God's design for us to be truly joyful. See, God's design is not just our temporary comfort, temporal comfort, temporal me meaningless happiness, the one that kind of fades very quickly. God's design for our lives is eternal joy. So we ought to live for that. The man who found true joy found it when he became a prisoner of hope. You realize that we go from being a slave to our flesh to being a slave of our Father. That's how we should live. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this example that's set before us tonight. Lord, as we think of Paul, as he's in this situation as a Roman prisoner, Lord, that he is facing death that would soon come. And Lord, that he is speaking with Jews who in another life, if Paul had pursued different things, would be so impressed with him. They'd be so taken with his knowledge and with his ability. And instead, Lord, some of them think he's right. Some of them discuss it with him. But Lord, he is not popular. He is not wealthy. He is not any of the things that we often seek after. Lord, I pray that we would see this example and then we would consider what we live our lives for. Do we live our lives for your glory? Do we really say, can, if somebody was to be chained to us, would they say that this person lives for the hope of the gospel? Or would they say they live just like everybody else does and they go to church on Sunday? Lord, it's a sad commentary about much of Christendom. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that that the lives that are being sacrificed in Korea, um, that this is the greatest decision that they can make. Help us to live the same commitment that they showed and what Paul showed. We love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.